Good to see you here this morning. Happy Father's Day. I'm not going to preach a Father's Day sermon. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 5. To be honest with you, uh, in just a moment, some of you might be a little bit puzzled as to what I'm going to be doing today, but I'll just say this. Um, I had a totally different way I'd planned on going at the beginning of the week and began studying for a totally different sermon. And Wednesday night, by Wednesday night, the, the, the feeling or uh, I, I don't know what the, the impression from the Holy Spirit is, this is not the sermon he wants me to deliver, uh, just was so heavy upon me. I told Heather Wednesday night, I said, I'm not going to do the sermon I've been studying for, and I'm going to do a different one. This is uh, what we're going to be talking about is something that's been on my mind for a while. Uh, to tell you the truth, I listened to a series of sermons on this, uh, just on and off for the past, I don't know, six, seven, eight months. been listening to sermons like this, so this is something that's just been a heart meditation and a, a meditation of mind on Scripture. And I know it's Father's Day, but we're going we're gonna to be discussing a very sobering and very serious topic. So most likely you're not going to walk out of here saying, Happy Father's Day, but it's something that I think that we need to hear as believers. We need to understand Scripture, and we need to hear the hard truth sometimes, don't we? And you say that now. You'll, we'll see at the end. But um, I want to I talk to you about how do you live in a culture that rejects God? Uh, and what I want to do is, is build through Scripture. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Scripture do almost all the talking today. It's, it's, uh, and I think when you're done, you're going to see a, a very clear picture of, of uh, where our culture is going. We know it's disintegrating. Um, uh, Darren mentioned it this morning, uh, that, that our culture is getting worse. With every passing day, there are more and more evidence of cultural rot surfaces. And for the last couple decades of my adult life, Christians have... Uh, discuss with one another and sometimes rather heatedly about the state of our culture. Questions such as, can it be redeemed? If so, what's the best course of action for Christians? And today, I would like to briefly enter that fray. And as I said, my main strategy, I'm just going to read Scripture, make brief comments on Scripture, and let Scripture do all the talking. And so I'm going to ask at that you all turn to Isaiah 5. I know we're going to have scripture on, on board but, or on the, the, the video screens, but you might want to take notes on, on your scriptures or mark something that you want to go back to reading it in context and stuff because it's something that you'll want to understand. I'm, I'm preaching today more than at other times to the mind and allow God to work to the heart. So this is going to be uh, more of of a teaching style sermon. Let's take our minds back to the Old Testament. When Israel was coming into the promised land, remember they left Egypt, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and God went in Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is an awesome book in the Pentateuch, it's all about the heart. Heart, 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 all the way through Deuteronomy. And God promised them great blessings if they obeyed Him, and if they taught their children to love the Lord. Of course, we saw in Judges, uh, on Mother's Day actually, that it only took one generation for things to start disintegrating in Israel, didn't it? One generation, that's all it took. 
But God, in his grace, he sent judges to help rescue them. Then, uh, after the judges, he sent kings that were supposed to lead and, and do it in a godly fashion. And then, when, the, when that disintegrated, he sent prophets to warn the people to, that if they did not change, judgment was coming. And, and they didn't listen to the prophets. And so, for 700 years... After their entry into Israel, um, they continue or into the promised land, Israel continually disobeyed and turned away from the Lord in every way they possibly could. There was always a remnant, but the majority of them turned away from the Lord. And so the question that I, that I want to look at today in Scripture is this: Does there come a time when the Lord's patience runs out with a society or with a culture or with a nation? And the answer you're going to see from Scripture is yes, indeed, that definitely happens. And all that brings us to Isaiah chapter 5. Now Isaiah 5 is 700 years after Israel came into the promised land. Isaiah, we call him an 8th century prophet. That means that he was in the 700s B.C., before the time of Christ. He prophesied during the time of the collapse of the northern kingdom. Remember that Israel's divided at this time. There's the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, the ten tribes and two tribes. And the northern kingdom collapsed by the invasion of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Isaiah was in Judah, the southern kingdom, and that's where he prophesied. And look at Isaiah 5, verse number 1. The Lord tells a parable. He says this, he says, let me sing for my beloved. Now I'm going to stop right there. Let me sing for my beloved. Who is this beloved? Well, uh, we find that our, our Lord Jesus Christ himself in Mark chapter 12 tells us that the beloved is none other than the Son of God. Is none other than the second person of the Trinity. So the Father is singing a song for his Son. This is what's going on in Isaiah 5. And he says this. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And, and so he's taking very, this is, this is all signs, hey, look, I want this to be a spectacular vineyard. And so I'm going to do everything I can to make this a very good vineyard. And because of the care that he'd given in their preparation, he would expect that it would yield what? Good grapes. But what did the Lord say? The Lord said, but it only produced what? Worthless ones. Worthless grapes, the word wild grapes, it's uh, uh, bushim, it's, it's sour berries. They're, they're literally inedible. In, inedible? Anyway, whatever that word is, you can't eat them, right? And so this is, this is the product of the perfect care of the Lord. Now, look at what he says next, verse number three. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, so here it is. Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom, judge between me and my vineyard. He's speaking for the Lord here. And the Lord says, judge between me and my vineyard, 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, and it yielded wild grapes. In other words, what God is saying here is, this is not my fault. This is not my fault. I did everything to make this a really good vineyard, and it didn't turn out that way. So since it produced nothing but sour, inedible grapes or berries, look at what he says in verse number 5. Let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, uh, and briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. This is what he's going to do to this vineyard. Now, this is a very beautiful picture. If you've been to Israel, you've been to the, 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 the valley the Samaria, uh, in Samaria and uh, what we would call the West Bank, you would see that every field had uh, a row of rocks around it. Like a, and then sometimes you'd even see a little watchtower. And the reason they have that, there's so many rocks that that's how they cleared out for the vineyard. And so they just made fence rows out of it, more or less. And he said, look, I'm going to take all that, and I'm going to destroy it, and I'm going to let the vineyard just go to waste, and I'm going to let uh, wild animals eat of it, and I'm not going to let rain come on it. What is he saying here? He's saying total destruction of the vineyard. It will no longer be a vineyard when he's done. Now here's the question. What is the vineyard? What is the vineyard? Verse number 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There's the answer right there. He's talking about Israel. And so Isaiah comes along in the 8th century B.C. And and God gives him a parable. And it's a parable about a man who plants a vineyard and does everything that he can to make it successful. And it's not his fault that the vineyard produced nothing but worthless, inedible grapes Judgment is pronounced upon that vineyard, and it has to be completely destroyed because it's non-productive. That's the picture there. And if you've you've done any kind of farming, uh, like uh, almonds and and any kind of of fruit trees and that, there comes a time when they're not productive anymore, and what do you do with it? You completely tear it out, and you plant new in. And this is what God is is um, saying here, in the 8th century, this is a reference to Israel, and the destruction is coming from who? It's coming from the Babylonians that happened in the 6th century, right? And starting in verse number 8, there are a series of woes. Woe is, uh, woe is pronounced upon them. It's judgment. God's pronouncing judgment. Verse number 8, you see woe. Verse number 11, woe. Um, and verse number 18, verse number 20, 21 and 22, they all have uh, woe. They're pronouncing judgment uh, and destruction. Now, why are they doing, why is God doing that? Why is God pronouncing judgment upon Israel? Look at verse number 24. What did he say? They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. There it is right there. They're not obeying God. And they despise his word, 
And so God is pronouncing judgment. Isaiah is pronouncing judgment in the form of a parable about a vineyard. And God is the one who builds the vineyard. God is the one who puts in the vineyard everything to make it flourish and productive. And it produces sour berries. And so God is going to destroy it. And that's exactly what happened in 586 B.C. when the Babylonian Empire conquered and destroyed Jerusalem and Israel and Judah. And that's the judgment parable. It's, it's a funeral song and it's a sad parable. Now think with me for just a minute. Imagine being the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, if you did not know this, was the prophet who prophesied among the elites in Jerusalem. Did you know that? He had access to the king and all of those kind of people. He was the, he was the prophet to the elites in Jerusalem. Now that doesn't sound very good, does it? So now we get to chapter number 6. The, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. This is exactly what he needs at this time because of what the Lord just told him. And so God gives him a vision, chapter 6, in verse number 1. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Now think with me for just a minute. This is really good news to Isaiah, who just had the parable spoken to him that he did. Wouldn't it be? I, uh, because of the way things had gone in Israel, he's already seen Assyria overrun the northern kingdom. And he might have assumed, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes, he may have assumed that God has been dethroned by everything that he sees going on. Where are you, God? Aren't you still in charge? He might assume that God has been dethroned, but it's not so. God is sovereign, and his glory is symbolized by the train of his robe filling the temple. It permeates everything in the vision, and his, his glory extends to the full range of the vision. He's still on the throne. He's high and lifted up. He's lofty. He's exalted. He's all glorious, and the angels are around him. What are they doing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so these very foundational truths about God are present right here. And you know what they are? They're this. Number one, that God is sovereign. And number two, that God is holy and sinless. And those are two truths that every human being needs to hear, right? And so, think about this. Think with me. When you look around at the culture, and it looks like everything is out of control, and it looks like destruction is everywhere, God is sovereign and holy, and he is still in control. And here's an important principle. When everything is bad as it could possibly be, when destruction's coming upon the covenant people of God, whether it was Israel or whether it's the church in the New Testament, when destruction is coming, when Jerusalem and the temple and the nation will be de devastated and destroyed and massacred and slaughtered and carried off into captivity, God is sovereign over that. And he is sovereign over everything that's going on in the United States of America right now and around the world. He has not left his throne, he's not asleep, and he has not lost one ounce of his power. God's action 
with the Babylonian invasion is, is an expression of his holy, righteous hatred of sin. God hates sin. I was just talking to somebody this morning who has uh, um, somebody close to them who's living an immoral lifestyle that God said this lifestyle is an abomination. And they looked at this person, this member of our church, and said, God will have to accept me as I, as I am. No, that is not the case. That's dethroning God. God hates sin. From that abomination to any little way that you and I shade his character as, as images of God. He hates sin. He will not tolerate it. And he hasn't changed, has he? Now, how does Isaiah respond to this? How does he respond to this vision, this, this glorious vision of God on the throne? Look at verse number 5. He understands that he's a sinful man just like everybody else. And so he said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then we, we know the story, right? Uh, what, what happened then? A seraphim uh, took a, a burning coal and flew down and put it on his tongue. And uh, Isaiah was forgiven and his iniquity was taken away. And so the, the, it's symbolic of the Lord saving Isaiah. The Lord saved him. He redeemed him. He cleansed him and purified him. And he gives Isaiah a message. God said, who will go for me? And Isaiah said, I'll go, right? And he said, what shall I say, Lord? Now, how would you like to give this message? You ready? Look at verse number 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind and their eyes Lest they blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You know, basically, in the words of one preacher, go tell them it's, it's too late. It's literally too late for you. You wouldn't listen, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't believe, and now you can't. Who's making the heart dull? Who's making the ears heavy? Who's making their eyes blind? Answer, them and God. Remember back in Exodus during the, the, the plagues, you read through that um, and you see the Pharaoh hardened his heart and who else? God hardened his heart. Basically, you can say God is giving them exactly what they wanted. Exactly what they wanted. He's doing it, they're doing it. It's going, side, I don't know how it works. It's the sovereignty of God, though, right? So Isaiah, now he asks another question. Okay, God, this is a really bad message. Do I just give it once? How, how long do I give this message? Well, answer, you, you can find in beginning of verse number 11. How long, how long do I do this? Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and, for, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Basically this, you keep giving this message until there's no one else to give it to. You keep giving this message 
until all houses have been destroyed. You keep giving this message until everyone has been carried away into Babylon. That's what God is saying. The cities have been devastated. There's no one left. It's, it's uninhabitable. Houses are empty. And they've all gone into the Babylonian captivity. You keep giving this message. Sobering, isn't it? These are God's covenant people. And it's a very sober message when a whole society rejects the Lord. But there's one little glimmer of hope in this whole passage. You want to see it? I think we need that, don't we? Look at verse number 13. And though a tenth remain in it. In other words, there's a remnant. He, he's, he's telling Isaiah, it's too late for the nation, but I have my remnant. Till a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In other words, if Israel's a tree, I'm going to cut the tree, and it's all going to go away. I'm going to leave a stump, and that stump is the remnant of those who believe. That's it. They're completely gone. The holy seed is a stump. Of course, Israel didn't listen, did they? They kept doing their own thing. What happened? Well, we know what happened. God destroyed the nation, except for a righteous remnant. That, that righteous remnant, they were of the people who went to Babylon. And they lived happily ever after, right? Is that how it worked? What are you guys laughing for? They come back to Israel. They come back to the promised land. And you think, oh, man, they've learned their lesson. They've got it down now. This will never happen again. Now, remember... 700 years from when they came in to Isaiah, and Isaiah was 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so they're just doing great when we get to the New Testament. Well, let's see about that. Let's turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We're going to begin in verse number 10, but let me set this up for just a minute. Jesus had just finished the parable of the soils. I love the parable of the soils. And the reason I love the parable of the soils is it explains so much about the way people react to the gospel. And it explains so much about people who profess the gospel and then one day you don't see them again. Jesus explains what's going on in the heart in that parable. If you've never read and studied that, you need to read and study what Jesus said. And it'll help you understand when you, when you give the gospel, uh, what, 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 what is going on with people and why people leave the church to never come back to the church. I'm talking about not our church, but the church, right? Okay, and then uh, he just finished and the disciples asked him a question in verse number 10. Look at the question. The, the question in verse number 10 is, why do you speak in parables? Well, he answers it. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has been not now understand what is going on with parables we love the parables don't we we love the parables they're beautiful we love the parables because we understand the parables because it has been given to us to understand it jesus made very clear here i am speaking to israel in parables because this is judgment 
Look at what he said. Look at it again. To them it has not been given to know the secrets of, of the kingdom of heaven, but to you has. Who did he explain the parable to? Did he explain it to Israel or did he explain it to the twelve? Answer is the twelve. He's explaining it to them. You see what's going on here? We're seeing a little bit of judgment coming out in Jesus' ministry here. Then in verses 14 and 15, he quotes Isaiah 6, the destruction passage. He just quoted what we just read, Isaiah 6. Then he reassures them that they're the remnant. Look at verse number 16. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Do you know what he's telling them? He's saying, you remember that, that stump that was left? You're the stump. You're the remnant. The rest of them are the tree that needs to be taken away. Once again, Israel has turned against the Lord. They're rejecting the Messiah that he sent. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, once again, it's too late for Israel. It's too late. We see this in, in parable form in Mark chapter 12. Turn to Mark chapter 12. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, they are, they, they, they've been saying for hundreds of years, we want the Messiah. When the Messiah shows up, they're like, no, I don't want that one. I want a different Messiah. They're rejecting the Messiah. And so in the last verses of Mark 11, Jesus is in the temple, and his Messiahship is being challenged by the leaders. This is, this is Passion Week. This is the last week before his crucifixion, that last week, and the, the religious leaders are constantly challenging him. Constantly challenging him. And so chap, we get to chapter 12 of Mark, and it begins this way. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. What does that sound like to you? Isaiah chapter 5. He's literally taking Isaiah chapter 5, and now he's going to apply it to the time that he's living, you see. Well, let's keep, let's keep reading. Um, this time, what he does in Mark 12 is he moves forward in Israel's history to the time of his coming. And he says, you know, uh, the, the king was getting ready to come back, and so he sent some, some of his servants, and they, they beat the servants. And then they threw the servants out, and then they killed. And so finally, verse number 6, he says this. He still had one other, a beloved son. Now, there it is again. Where is this quoting? This is Isaiah 5 and verse number 1, where he says, Let me sing a song to my who? My beloved. You see, he's, he's, he's taking Isaiah 5, and now he's applying it to that current situation. The beloved whom God sang a song for in Isaiah 5, God sent his son. And how do the tenants respond to the son? Verse number 6. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. In other words, they threw Jesus out of the nation. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. They didn't want to have anything to do with him at all. What will the owner do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard 
to others. Israel rejected Jesus one more time. They crucified him outside Jerusalem. They rejected him completely and said that they do not want him. And what did God say that he was going to do? I'm going to destroy the tenants. And when did that happen? 70 AD, didn't it? The death of tens of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. If you've never read that, it's, it's horrific how they suffered and died in Jerusalem when the Romans came and took over Jerusalem and leveled the city. The temple was never rebuilt. There's no temple there on the Temple Mount, is there? Matter of fact, there's the Dome of the Rock. There, there are no priests. There's, there's no priesthood whatsoever. There are no sacrifices. The only sacrifices you find in Israel right now are with uh, Samaritans, believe it or not. If you go up north and um, you go on Mount Gerizim, you can find Samaritans, and they still observe the Passover there on Mount Gerizim. That's the only sacrifice that's going on. There's no Sadducees. There's no Pharisees. There's no priests. There's no chief priest. To this day, the whole system has ended. It's gone. The vineyard is Israel. But here's the question. Who's these others that he gives the vineyard to? Who's these others? The others were the apostles, right? They were the apostles. And the early church met, and they studied the apostles' doctrine, and these are the next custodians, right? The apostles, the disciples of the apostles, these are the new stewards of the kingdom. These are the stewards that uh, Jesus just told the parable about that he's going to give it to. He's going to give it to other stewards. And the other stewards now are the disciples, the apostles, and the disciples of the apostles. But I don't have time to read it, um, but I'll just quote part of Acts 28. You don't even have to turn there. But in Acts 28, you find that Paul is in Rome. And when he got to Rome, he did the same thing he always does. He called the Jewish leaders into where he was under house arrest in Rome, and he he gave the gospel message to them. He taught them about Jesus the Messiah, and they, they rejected the message while he was in Rome. So guess what Paul did? Now this is, this is about 60, well, about 30 years after Jesus' teaching. 30 years later, this is what Paul said to the Jewish leaders. He said, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophets, here you go, you ready? Go tell this people, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Guess what Paul is telling them? What's he telling them? What did Isaiah tell them? It's too late. What did Jesus tell them when he quoted Isaiah 5? And by the way, Jesus quoted Isaiah 5. Um, several times, it's too late. What's Paul telling them? It's too late. So now turn with me to Romans 11. I'm going somewhere with all this, but you need to see what Scripture says. I don't know if you've ever put this together like this. This is Scripture, and this is so important for us to understand for the context 
of, of where we are today. Romans 11. Here's the question. Did Israel ever turn to Christ? The answer is no. Romans 11, Paul is writing about salvation to the Jews. Now look at verse number 5. Romans 11, 5, Paul says this, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. Now he's talking about Israel. There's a remnant, what? Chosen by grace. There it is in un, you know, no uncertain terms, election. There's a remnant chosen by God, the doctrine of election. Verse number 6, but if, it's, uh, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. There's that doctrine of election that Jesus, Jesus taught to the disciples. I'm speaking in parables so they don't understand, but I'm going to explain it to you. Just like Isaiah said, there's going to be a stump left, okay, a remnant. That's it. But notice the frightening statement that Jesus gave. Look at this frightening statement. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And what it was seeking was what? Righteousness with God, a relationship with God. But it has not attained it because the... Because why? Too late. These were chosen. The rest were rejected, is basically what's going on. The rest were hardened. It's, it's unmistakable what's going on here. Look at uh, verse number 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Paul's saying 30 years later, down to this very day, Israel cannot receive the truth of the gospel. Why? Two things, remember, these two things go hand in hand. Number one, this is what Israel wanted. They rejected Christ, didn't they? And so since they rejected Christ, what did God do? He gave them exactly what he wanted, what they wanted, and he made their eyes and ears so they couldn't understand. He's giving them what they want, you see? Now, I don't want to get into the doctrine of election because it's, it's beyond the scope of this message. But you have to understand the Bible teaches God giving man what he wants. And we see it right here. They don't want Christ. Okay, you don't want Christ. Then I'm just going to give you a spirit of stupor. Does that make sense? This is scripture. This is not Jared Edgecombe speaking. This is scripture, and it's plain and clear. Okay, please don't email me and say, um, you know, whatever. This is simply scripture. This is all this is. Okay, and they're side by side. Now let's review something, and we're going to move on uh, to our current day situation. It's become too late for the Israelites in the eighth century. We see this in Isaiah. Jesus prophesied that it was too late for the Jews. Paul said earlier in Romans 11, earlier in his career in Romans 11, that's too late for the Jews. And he said it at the very end of his apostleship in Acts 28, that it's too late for the Jews. 
The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and this is very important to understand, very important truth. You ready? Please hear this. A generation of people can come to Christ too late. Uh, let me rephrase it. A generation of people can seek Christ too late. That's what God is saying to them. Now, how does this apply to us? Can it be too late for a generation of people to come to Christ? Well, it was too late for 8th century Israel. It was too late for 1st century Israel. But here's something that we need to understand. I don't have time to go through this, but it's been too late for every nation on earth at one point or another. Every nation that had ever existed, it became too late for. In Acts chapter 14, and this is what I don't have time for, uh, because it's a little bit out of the scope of this message, God says that he allows all nations to go their own way. To go their own way. That's, that's destruction. That's what they want. They want destruction. Now, is it too late for our nation? Answer is yes, it is. How? How does anyone know that it's too late for nation and God has given it over to judgment. How? How can I say this? Scripture says it for us. Turn to Romans 1. Romans 1. Romans 1 is a picture of what happens when God lets a nation go. When a, when a nation turns against the obvious revelation of God in nature, we call it, theologians call that the natural revelation, God lets them go. We see this in verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, listen to this phrase, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we're talking about wrath that God unleashes on nations that suppress the truth. Now we're not talking about biblical truth here. This is not biblical truth, although in our country we've had not only natural revelation, but we've had abundant biblical revelation haven't we we've had them both but he's he's talking about when people turn around turn away from that they they suppress the truth and suppressing the truth is an act of unrighteousness when you'll see it in just a moment when you look at nature and you de uh, deny that there is a god from nature you are suppressing the truth and that's an unrighteous act according to god Okay, suppressing the truth is unrighteousness. So think about our, our own country. With the change of governance in our country this year, there's going to be an escalation of suppression of truth, isn't there? There is. The, the people who are in charge, they're unrighteous people. There's no two ways about it. They're unrighteous people. And the agenda will be to suppress the truth. And so when a, when a nation suppresses the truth, it looks like this. Verse number 19 for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, what has he shown to them? Verse number 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived from creation. Isn't that what it says? From the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Listen. 
You cannot go any other way to say anything else, to give in any other way, is to call God a liar. And it is this. You can look at nature and know that there is a God. God said that. And if you say, well, no, that's not exactly true, you are in essence saying, God, you're a liar. God said this, right? Nature clearly shows that there is a God. Now, verse 21 gives the problem. For although they knew God, let me pause here, it means although they knew God existed. doesn't mean they knew him personally. They knew that there is a God by looking at that nature. Look at what else he says. He says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And this is the cycle of the nations. This is a cycle of the nations. At first, they have a revelation of God, and they turn against it, and they develop their own gods. They can see from nature that there is a God who created it all, but they don't want that God. They don't want it, and so they reject it, and they come up with their own gods. Verse number 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What, what, what Paul's talking about here, I do want to explain there are several kinds of wrath. This is the wrath of God in letting a nation go. And every nation in human history has gone this way. Not one nation has ever remained true to God. Not one, okay? So what does it look like when God lets a nation go? What does it look like? When his wrath visits a nation, verse number 24, look at the very first phrase, therefore God gave them up. Now that phrase, God, uh, gave them up, that's, that's used three times in this passage, you'll see. And that phrase, gave them up, is always talking about judgment. When you give someone up, you're giving them up to judgment. And th- what does judgment look like? God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring other bodies among themselves. When God lets a nation go, you have a sexual revolution. That's the first phase of when God lets a nation go over to judgment, a sexual revolution. We went through that, didn't we? The 1960s, we've been through the sexual revolution. Well, what else happens? Second phase, verse number 26, homosexual revolution. For this time, or for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nation or nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so when God gives a nation up to wrath, there's first a sexual revolution, then there's a homosexual revolution, and there's a third step. And the third step is found in verse number 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. A debased mind. What is that third step? Total insanity. Complete breakdown in rationality. That's when you don't know if you're a man or you're a woman. It's completely irrational 
Because what is physically obvious is denied, right? When you have a culture that's gone through a sexual revolution, a homosexual revolution, followed by an irrationality where leaders in Washington can say, oh yeah, there's probably up to 100 genders. Then you know that the wrath of God is at work. And this is all Scripture. Have I given you anything but Scripture? Is it clear? Is it clear? It is, isn't it? It's very clear what's going on in our nation is Romans chapter 1. You cannot deny that. And so I do not buy into the notion that we're going to have a nationwide revival. I don't buy it. The reason I don't buy it is because both the Old and the New Testament teach that once God's wrath begins on a nation, it's too late. It is too late for that nation. But God always leaves us remnants, right? And that's where we are. I'm I'm looking at the remnant, the remnant. Now, here's a question. We've got to wrap this up. Here's a question. What do we do? What, what do we do? Well, we do like Isaiah. We do like, the, uh, like Jesus, and we do like the apostles. You know what we do? We preach the gospel, and we preach it boldly. Isaiah was bold. Jesus was bold. The apostles were bold. Uh, because even in, and we do this, we preach the gospel, why? Because even in a nation that's under God's wrath, he has his remnant. And we don't know who they are, do we? And so we preach that gospel, we preach it everywhere and to everyone because we don't know who part of that remnant is. And we boldly proclaim the gospel. We live the gospel truths boldly. We do it boldly because As the culture gets darker, biblical truth gets brighter, doesn't it? And that's what's going on in our nation. There's a stark difference. When when I was young, you could not tell much of a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, could you? Well, some of you are too young to know when I was young, but some of you old people, right? Today, it is so easy. You just start talking about any subject, and you can tell a difference almost immediately can't you? You know, fathers, this is Father's Day. The greatest mission field that you have is in your home. And so fathers, you boldly live for Jesus Christ. You show them that tender mercy and compassion as a, as, as a, a, a strong man like, like David, and you show them Jesus Christ, and you show them who God is and how firm he was on holiness and righteousness, and yet at the same time, how tender he was towards his own. And you give them that gospel, fathers, and you live that gospel so that they they see it lived out in your life, and they see Jesus Christ, and they say, I want that Jesus Christ. That's your greatest mission field. And then you train them to go out and to be bold. We We don't live in a holy huddle. We don't build high walls. We come in here, we hear the gospel, 
we get energized and, and then we go out and we tell people about the wedding banquet that is to come. And we do it boldly. That's what we want our children to do, right? And I know many of you have children right now who are living a, a clear gospel witness in a very pagan environment. Aren't you proud of them when they do that? You have the wonderful privilege of doing that, and so we're bold. This is not, um, I, I left last week in Re- Revelation 2 and 3, I left out one part, and I thought this is a perfect part to stick it in to every church. What do we do when the culture is turning against us? We remember some of these things that we will overcome. And when we overcome, we will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And when we overcome through Jesus Christ, we will not be hurt by the second death. And when we overcome through the power of Jesus Christ, we will receive a new name written on stone. And we will have authority over the nations. And we will be clothed in white garments. And our names will never be blotted out of the book of life. Praise be to God. And we will be a pillar in the temple of God. And finally, and most important of all, we will never be away from His presence because we will be granted authority to sit on His throne and we will rule and we will reign with Him. And on that day, and when we get to that day, all the corrupt nations of the world will have disappeared and the only thing that is left is righteousness, holiness, and the glory of of Jesus Christ lighting up everything that we see. No need for the sun, no need for the moon, no need for the stars, because the glory of God will illuminate everything that we see, and there will be no corner of heaven where there's any kind of darkness. Amen? And so I'm going to tell you this. Is it depressing to see our culture go the way it is? It is, in a sense. But we have to remember... This has been the history of the whole world. Almost every other Christian people who've ever lived have lived under persecution, and we're not there yet. But we have a hope in Christ alone and not in the government. Amen? Lord, I thank you for Scripture. It's so crystal clear what is going on. It's so crystal clear what you think of sin what the history of the nations have been, have been and what uh, you, your plan for the future of the world is. You, you have made that abundantly clear for us. And I pray, Lord, uh, for some, uh, these truths are hard because uh, they, they may not want to accept them. But this is Scripture truth. For others, these truths are hard because uh, they are, are saddened by the change in history. And others, these truths are hard because life is already hard because of the environment that they live in. I pray that what you will do for us today is give us eyes to see clearly what you said you're doing in the world today and give us eyes, more importantly, clearly see the glory of Jesus Christ and him crucified and help us to be more bold today than we were yesterday and more bold tomorrow than we were today and help us to increase in righteousness and holiness Uh, and long for the day when the kingdom of God shall come. In his name we pray, amen.